Again, good morning. My name's Dave. If we haven't met before, I'd love to meet with you. And if you're joining us online, just want to say thank you for taking time to join us this morning as well. We are in our second week in our sermon series in Ephesians entitled, Alive in Christ. I mentioned last week how this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who is sitting in a prison cell in Rome to the church in Ephesus, and that this letter of his is kind of divided into two parts. The first part, in chapters 1 to 3, it looks back. It's, it's a summary of the gospel story, all that God has done in salvation history. And the second part, chapters 4 to 6, looks forward, describing how the good news of the gospel should reshape every part of our lives. We also saw last week how important this phrase, in Christ is, in the, gospel, in the book of Ephesians. Last week, Paul used this phrase, in Christ, five times in the first 14 verses, and he'll go on to use it another 31 more times in the rest of this letter. And in the opening, he says that believers are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul goes on to give us a list of what these spiritual blessings are. But he reminds us of something hugely significant that we need to recognize. And that is, we are in Christ in the heavenly realms. Often we recognize that Jesus uh, lives in us here on earth, even though he resides in the heavenly dimension. But Paul says that the opposite of this is true too. That if you are a follower of Jesus, then not only is he alive in you here on earth, but you are alive in him in the heavenly dimension. And that should change how we see things. For Paul who is in prison, it means that the chains and the bars that hold him captive, they don't tell the whole story. Paul has joy, so much joy, uh, that those, his captors around him, aren't able to know because he is freer than any of them could ever imagine. And Paul says the same is true for you and I. Our earthly circumstances here and now, they do not tell the whole story. Ephesians intends to give us a different perspective, a revised outlook on our present and our future. And last week we saw how in Christ we are blessed beyond belief. In today's passage, Paul wants the Ephesians and us to continue to see how good we really have it. However, he wants us to go beyond seeing, imagining, or even believing. He wants us to experience this. He wants us to become familiar with the benefits of being a Christian, but also familiar with the benefactor. He wants us to become intimate with the giver of the gifts. Today, in the passage we're looking at this morning, Paul wants us to know the blessings of knowing God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, Paul begins this passage by saying that he has heard about the believer's faith in the Lord and their love for all of God's people. And one person might read this and wonder, that's a strange thing to write. How does one hear about another's faith if faith is just mental assent, you know, a way of thinking? How does one hear about love if love is just an emotion? But of course, what Paul has heard about is how faith in the Lord has transformed these Ephesian believers' lives. How they no longer go to the temple of the goddess Artemis or the temple dedicated to Augustus and proclaim Caesar as Lord. They now gather with the church and proclaim Jesus as king. Paul has heard about how their faith has transformed their work and their leisure. How they now view their possessions and time differently, no longer just for themselves, but now in service to Christ. And he has heard about how they care for one another. When they came to faith in Christ, they also became a part of his community, the family of God. And Paul must have heard about how they serve and look out for one another. How they show allegiance to each other, just like a family should. Because when the Bible talks about faith, faith is more than just belief. And when it talks about love, it means more than just emotion. According to the Bible, both faith and love, they are expressed in our words, but they are primarily expressed by our actions. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to believers, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In 1 John 3, the apostle says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. And I'm so thankful that like Paul, I can say the same thing about Calvary that he does about the church in Ephesus. I regularly hear about your faith in the Lord and about your love for all of God's people. And not only do I hear about it, friends, I see it in you. But let's not stop. Let's keep taking opportunities to let the light of Christ shine through our lives to this world around us, whether that's in sharing the hope of Christ with other people or through serving, like through the cold weather map program next month. And let's keep demonstrating our faith in Christ. And let's keep loving each other here and God's people around the world, whether that's by praying for one another or sharing a meal or maybe sending support to Christians in other parts of the world, showing love for others in the family of Christ is one of the greatest privileges that we have. Paul says in verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The first thing I notice in this section is how important praying for the church is to Paul. And I said one of the best ways that we can love others here and the church abroad is by praying for each other. Another thing that we may overlook is the radical transformation that has taken place in Paul. Remember that before coming to faith in Christ, Paul was a zealous Jew. He was a religious leader known as a Pharisee. And so he would have prayed all of his life to the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac and Jacob. And certainly he would have prayed every day to the God of Israel. But now Paul prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Paul now praying to the God of King Jesus, but the people whom Paul is referring to when he says, our Lord includes non-Jews, Gentiles, that make up this Ephesian church. These are monumental changes in Paul's life. Coming to know Jesus has changed everything for him. It has changed how he sees himself and his circumstances, how he sees others and how he sees the world, and who he sees at the center of it all. It is Jesus. And Paul has been so profoundly changed and enriched by knowing Jesus that this is what he desires more of for the Ephesians, that they would know the blessings of knowing God. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The big thing, that Paul prays for the church and what you and I should be praying for one another is that we may know him better. And everything else in this passage, it flows from this one desire that Paul has for the Ephesians and all of the churches that he cares for, that they would know God better. Knowing God is more than just knowing about God or having heard of him. It's also much more than knowing things about God, like being able to recount stories from the Bible or being able to explain complex theological truths. See, knowing in the Bible is a term that is used for deep, intimate, personal knowledge. The kind of knowing that a husband and wife have between one another. And Paul's desire for the Ephesians is that they would grow in relational intimacy and dependence on God more and more. That they would know him more personally and deeply than they know anyone or anything. But in order to know him in this way, they need two things, he says. Wisdom and revelation. Now, wisdom is more than just knowledge and learning. One can have many school degrees on their walls or reach the highest levels of scholarship and still act like a fool and lack wisdom. The wisdom that we need to know God better is the skill and the know-how to live in this world in relationship with God. And revelation, which we get from the word apocalypse, is something that is very often misunderstood. 
We often think of it as signs of the end of the world, but apocalypse or revelation, it means to reveal or to open up. It's like an unveiling, like when you go to the theater and they have these large curtains and they are drawn back in order to reveal what's behind on the stage. And in order for you and I to know God better, we need the curtains to be drawn back in order to show us that what we see and what we experience in this world, it's not all that there is. That there is more going on than meets the eye. And we also need the curtains to be pulled back on our faith to show us that all that we see and experience currently in our relationship with God isn't all that there is either. See, in Christ, there is more hope, more riches, and more power than we know. And Paul wants us to have wisdom and revelation so that we will know the blessings that come with knowing God. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of of wisdom and revelation, it's not a temperament or attitude or ethos. The Spirit is a person. It is the Holy Spirit. And Paul referred to the Holy Spirit back in verse 14, who is the one who also seals us, making us secure, making us or marking us out as God's possession. It is the Spirit, he says, who is our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And here it is the Spirit of God that Paul prays would give us wisdom and revelation. And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul displays his Trinitarian theology, showing us how Father, Son, and Spirit, they all work together for the glory of God and the redemption of his people. And to know him better means knowing him, Father, Son, and Spirit. But praise be to God, That knowing him better, it's not completely left up to our efforts alone. It says that the Father gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to help us know him better. Paul prays in verse 18, and we sung it this morning, that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Today we know that the heart is a major organ that pumps blood throughout our bodies and the brain is the place of our thoughts and feelings and intellect. But in the ancient world, it was the heart that was thought of to be the center of the person and where all of these things resided. And eyes are used as metaphor in scripture for wisdom, but also scripture uses eyes like windows for our lives that let in light or darkness. And so our eyes can be windows that allow good or evil to enter into our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? But here, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts, the the windows of the center of who we are, would be clear so that they can be enlightened, 
that they would allow the Spirit to shine in wisdom and revelation so that we would know him better. And in particular, that we would know three benefits that come with knowing God. He says these three benefits, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And that you would also know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So first, Paul wants us to know the hope to which he has called us. You know, the hope that we have been called to is not that once we die, we will leave earth and go to heaven. The hope to which we have been called is so much bigger and better than that. The hope of the gospel is what God has already started in Jesus and what he will complete once Jesus returns. It is the reconciliation of all things. If our hope was only leaving earth to go to heaven, then why would Jesus teach his followers to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Our hope It is living for eternity with Christ in a renewed and restored paradise where heaven meets earth and nothing separates us from the presence of God. We live in this in-between time right now. Christ has already inaugurated his kingdom when he came to the earth and he proclaimed that the kingdom of God had arrived with him. And he has already begun to reconcile and transform this world, beginning with those people who would follow him. But our hope is not fulfilled. We wait with longing and in anticipation of what God will complete when Christ returns. And so Christians, we live from this future hope. It is what spurs us on to be ambassadors for reconciliation in this world. It's what should motivate us to care for creation. We are participating with God in the renewal of all things, something that he has already begun and the future hope to which he has called us to. That is the hope that we are living for. The second thing that Paul wants us to know is the riches of, of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Do you see what he is saying here? God's inheritance, correction, God's glorious inheritance, of which there is such an abundance of that Paul refers to it as riches, is people, his people. Paul is saying that God's inheritance is his people, the church. And to know God better, we need to know his inheritance. And his inheritance, it's found here. It's found amidst his people. We are part of God's glorious inheritance. Imagine for a moment a person who is told that they had just received part of the inheritance of the king of the universe, part of his glorious, rich inheritance, and they got us, Calvary Baptist Church. What lucky ducks. But doesn't that radically change how you think about the church community? And it shouldn't that change how we think about the people who are sitting around us and how we treat them? 
for they are God's glorious inheritance. Again, the Bible challenges and subverts any individualistic thinking or concept of Christianity without the community of faith. God doesn't just put up with the church. He loves it. He treasures it. And we would do well to do the same, for we are his glorious inheritance, and to know God better means to know his people. Finally, Paul prays that we would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Power is one of the central themes in the letter to the Ephesians, and it's going to come up again. And the city of Ephesus, this was an important, powerful city in the empire. It was a place of social and civic power. It was a major center for imperial influence. It was also the center of these religious powers, having these two great temples to the goddess Artemis and one to Caesar. And the people of Ephesus, they were consumed with cults and magical powers whereby they hoped that if they could gain control of these powers, then they could influence people or events or gain wealth or health or social standing. Theirs was a world dominated by principalities and powers, whether those powers were government officials or spiritual powers. Now today, many of us are tempted to dismiss spiritual powers. We've become too sophisticated to think like that. We know better now. But the Bible teaches that there is more going on than what our senses can perceive and that there are powers beyond or even behind our human institutions. Theologian Walter Wink writes, The powers are not spiritual spooks inhabiting the air and leaping on the unwary. That was an earlier way of putting it. Nor are they merely institutions, political or economic systems, ideologies, and social structures. That's been a modern way of coming at it. Neither is adequate, though both contain some truth. The powers consist, it turns out, of an outer manifestation and an inner spirituality. The powers, whether benign or satanic, always consist of an outer, visible form, like constitutions, judges, armies, leaders, buildings, as well as an inner, invisible spirit that provides its legitimacy, credibility, and clout. So for example, one kind of power that is like this that we see in the Bible is mammon. Mammon or the evil desire for wealth. Now money itself can be a benign power. But Jesus does warn us of its ability to lead us astray. And this power's visible manifestation that Walter Wink talks about would be seen in things like banks or vaults or financial policies. But there is also an inner spiritual dynamic at world who wants to be Lord of our lives. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. But regardless of what these powers are, whether they're visible or invisible, human or spirit powers, we do not have to fear or ever wonder 
if we're strong enough to withstand their influence or attack. Because Paul wants us to know that one of the blessings that comes with knowing God is his power. His power for us. And this isn't just your run-of-the-mill kind of power. Look at how Paul describes it. He says, incomparably great. The same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Isn't that incredible? This awesome, life-giving power is specifically available for us who believe in Jesus. In verse 21, Paul goes on to list all the opposition that we could ever face. Good timing. Look at that. He lists them. Rule, authority, power, dominion, and names. And all of these terms represent both human and spiritual powers and opposition. But Paul stacks each term, one on top of the other, in order to emphasize Christ's victory over them is total. As commentator Klein Snodgrass says, it doesn't matter what power we face, whether it is real or imaginary, human or non-human, they're all subject to Christ. The powers are not in control. Christ is. The powers are not equal combatants on the stage of life. They are subject, and the only one in control is Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that the obstacles and opposition that you might be facing in your life right now aren't difficult or painful. It also doesn't mean that the things that are troubling us will turn out well or even as we hope for. But it does mean that we don't have to live in fear. We can have courage and hope even in the face of our troubles because our troubles don't get the last word. Jesus does. And in Christ, we can have this, we have this hope to which he has called us. And this hope is assured because of God's life-giving power which he displayed supremely in the resurrection of Jesus, which is available for all who would believe in him. And God gives us this power when we come to faith in Christ, enabling, enabling us to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. And it is his mighty strength that God uses to defeat the power of sin and transform us into new creations where we are born again. And it is his incomparably great resurrection power that not only defeated death and raised Christ from the grave, but will one day raise you and I from death as well to everlasting life. And he will renew not only this earth, but the entire cosmos and make all things new. But Paul doesn't want us to just know these things like facts to memorize in a textbook or as some sort of intellectual exercise. He doesn't want us to just understand the hope that we've been called to or be informed of the inheritance and his power. Paul wants us to be intimately acquainted with these things, to know them personally and deeply so that they transform our lives 
just as they did his. And the way that we can know them like this is only as a result of knowing the one who gives them to us. We know the blessings by knowing the, the one who blesses us. And so the hope that we've been called to, it is the future where nothing separates us from God and his love, where we will stand before him and worship him, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And the riches of his inheritance that he shares with us, it's his people. And one of the ways that we get to know another person and show our care for them is by growing in our understanding and interest in what they value. And Paul says that God greatly values his people. So if we're going to get to know God better, then it's pretty obvious that we need to grow in caring and valuing his church. By loving the church, not only do we love Christ, because the church is his body, Paul says in verse 23, but by loving one another here, we get to know the Father better. See, each of us is made in the image of God, and as believers, we are called his children. And just like people can get to know and understand me better by knowing my children, we also get to know our Heavenly Father better by spending time with his children. And finally, the power that God wants us to know. It's relational power. It is power that is known because we are bound to the one in whom this great power resides. Paul prays for the Ephesians, and my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would know God better and that we would know the blessings of knowing God. And in our most personal and intimate relationships where we know the other well and we are known by them, there is a great deal of love and love in these relationships, it is always spelled T-I-M-E. And that is because all of these things it takes to love another in order to get to know them well, it always takes time. And all of the ways that Paul suggests that we can know God in this passage will require significant amounts of time for, uh, from us. But that is how we show God our love. Remember what the apostle said. Don't, don't just talk about love. Show it by your actions. To love God and his people. To love God's people and to experience the riches of his inheritance. It means investing in a church community. It means more than just showing up on a Sunday, more than just coming in late, like after the announcements and rushing out after the benediction. If you really want to know God, it requires living in community with other believers who are also trying to live in the light. You see, we need others whom we share our struggles and joys in following Christ with. To know him better means we need wisdom and revelation. This means we need to ask the Spirit of God to open up our hearts and minds to what he wants to communicate to us, especially as we read Scripture. God's Word to us, which is our roadmap for life. Or as it says in the Scriptures, it is a light unto our path. And finally, knowing God means taking time to 
be in Christ, to abide in Christ. Spending time with God in prayer and worship and meditation, it requires finding time to be with him away from our distractions, like our cell phones. Noah can provide you with that slide if any of you need that for your quiet time. But we need that time away from our distractions, from our agendas, in order for us to speak to God, but especially to allow him to speak to us. And this is all for the purpose of knowing him better. And if we all did that, then I have no doubt that we would all know the blessings that come with knowing God. Would you stand with me and we will pray. Father, what a gift it is to know that your greatest desire is that we would come into relationship with you. That even you offer us your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation all for the purpose of knowing you better. We don't even do that on our own. You strengthen and empower us to know you better. What a good and loving God that you are. I pray that you would release us from any shame or guilt or anything that's holding us back from coming to you. And thank you that you welcome us with open arms. I pray that we would all be motivated, excited even, to get to know you better and to know that you are a God who loves us deeply. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us as a church community, that you would help us to know deeply the blessings that come from knowing you, that you would give us greater hope, that we would love the riches of your inheritance, which is your people, and that this would be a place that is full of the power of the Holy Spirit that brings life and healing the forgiveness of sins, and that from, um, from knowing you better, that others would come to know the hope that we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.